Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Zoe. And you're listening to the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. On today's episode, we find out what it's like to work for an MP and why parliamentary staffers are thinking of going on strike. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're discussing the life and working conditions of MPs' staff. A few weeks ago, Lee Anderson, a Tory MP and now Deputy Chair of the party, tweeted a picture of one of his employees that caused outrage online when he said she earned less than 30k, spent £120 a month on commuting and rented in central London, but did not need to use a food bank. And I should say that I did contact his office to ask him about his staff turnover, but we didn't get a reply. Since then, MP staff represented by the Unite Union have been discussing a strike ballot after rejecting a 4.9% pay offer, which they called woefully inadequate. And I should just note before we start that there are different types of employment in Parliament. There are staff who are employed by Parliament, like the House of Commons clerks and admin staff, and members of staff employed by individual MPs. Today we're joined by some staff who work for MPs, Jenny Simmons, Senior Researcher for a Labour MP and Chair of the GMB branch for members staff, and Holly Brazier-Tope, Senior Researcher for a Labour MP and Workplace Rep for the GMB branch for members staff. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Great to be here. So before we get into the meat of the topic, why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves, how long you've been working in Parliament? Actually, we've been working in Parliament around the same time because Holly and I met in our first month. So, yeah, I started in June 2018. So I've been there almost five years and I've worked for five MPs in that time. And so, yeah, started a similar time, like July 2018, and have worked for two different MPs, both for about two and a half years. Great. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do day to day? What is a day in the life of a staffer? Varies a lot depending on who you work for and what your role is. Holly and I both work for Labour front benches. So often if you work for a front bencher and you're a senior researcher or parliamentary assistant, you'll end up doing quite a lot in their policy briefs. I also end up doing a lot of kind of diary management, admin stuff. I have to do the expenses, which is I hate, and also some speech writing. And yeah, it's kind of a bit different, isn't it, every day? Yeah, very different. And I would, so I mostly am focused in my, the job I'm in now on policy stuff. So work mostly on developing Labour's energy policy. So a quiet brief for the last two years. <laughs> um, so that's a lot of speech writing, a lot of, you know, internal policy stuff and crisis management, to be honest, is a lot of what working for an MP is. So it's, yeah, every day is very different. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it's actually like working in the Palace of Westminster? Because I think people tend to think of it as this very palatial and grand environment, but actually there's floods, fires, asbestos, mice, terrible Wi-Fi. What are the kind of good parts and then the challenges of actually working in the palace? Honestly, the best part of my day is cycling up to the main gate of the palace and you've got like Big Ben and it's incredible and you get let in by these police officers and you cycle in on a little bike and I feel like I just I'm not important enough to do that (laughs) (laughs) but that's pretty special like being able to go to work every day and think that's your workplace the reality is very different (laughs) so I'm actually in Portcullis House which is the most modern building you would not know it it has had many issues recently you know legionnaires disease in the water so you couldn't we couldn't drink water for days roof leaks internet going out like you say and i have one very memorable meeting with my mp in the other room and halfway through he started coughing and he just couldn't stop and continued the rest of the meeting and i had no idea what was going on finished the meeting went in and he was like, I think there's a fire. And underneath the floor, all of the like fuses had just gone. <laughs> and it started smoking. Wow. <laughs> and he was just coughing. And honestly, that's just, just like another example. But it's an incredible place to work, but it's really not as grand as people think it is. Yeah. Wow. We did a bit of a campaign before Christmas on this other building, which is called One Parliament Street, which again is maybe like 50s or 60s. It's really not that old compared to the rest of the estate. But they were, the staff there were having power cuts, no lighting, no electricity, couldn't plug in their computers, there was no heating. So it's freezing temperatures and by all means like awful workplace conditions. Wrote to the sergeant at arms and they are going to improve the conditions there. But also corridors stink of urine and then there's mould on the ceilings. Like by all means I think bulldoze it, I think. There are, yeah, there's a lot of problems in basically every building regardless of how old it is. Wow. And there's this conversation comes up a lot periodically the employment of staff by individual MPs means that there's a lack of consistency of standards of working practices can you tell us a bit about how that feels for you you've said you work for five different MPs Jenny does it really fluctuate between your different individual employers yeah it does because a lot of our experience at work is dependent on the discretion of the MP that we are working for so Although IPSA, the financial body, they set pay bands for each role, the MPs can choose within those pay bands what they pay you. And the pay bands are vast. They go from like ten to £15,000 difference. So what you're paid changes depending on your MP, what budget, like how much budget they have left, but also maybe how much they like you. And then also how many hours you have to work. Some MPs would expect you to be there whenever they're there. So that could be 10-hour days, whether you're entitled to have the holidays that you want to have or sick leave and how flexible they will be on working remotely. All these things vary so much. And also the way that you're treated. If you're working for someone who who is highly strung and maybe takes out their stress on their staff, that's completely different to working for someone who wants to develop you and encourage you as a staff member. The only thing to add to that is that I think lots of MPs are in a position when they get into Parliament in the first place that they aren't managers. They've never managed staff before. They have no experience in managing an office. And, you know, probably it speaks much more to our wider political system that those are the kind of people that we're getting into these roles. But sadly, there are lots of MPs that feel insecure and take it out on staff and like the power that involves and that is really problematic and that's honestly some of the worst cases that we have coming to us 
all the time are because of that. And it's MPs that actually need more guidance in how to deal with staff. And that's why we have this campaign to not be employed by individual MPs anymore because we just don't think it's right for staff. It's completely unsustainable. It leaves the MPs with far too much power and pressure in dealing with staff. And we think that there should be, obviously MPs should still have control of who they hire. Absolutely not doubting that. But like it should be employed by the House of Commons so that you have a regulated HR department. People would be so shocked that we have so little advice and help as you would in any other workplace. We just don't have access and to no stuff like that. And no job security. You can get fired really easily based on the whims of the person that you're working for or just yeah, on short-term contracts as well, kind of people having longer contracts dangled in front of them if they just keep proving themselves. It's like you do have basically no control. And Colly said, we're really pushing to have a different employment system and to reform it, but we're the only group pushing for that. And obviously a lot of MPs don't want to do that they don't want to change the employment system because it would involve less control for them. And they are the ones who ultimately decide everything. Everything about our employment has to be decided by MPs and then voted on by MPs. Although we think it could be in their interests as well because it means less time having to be spent on silly like management things and HR stuff, time that they could spend on their constituents. They are very resistant to it. So we're going to keep pushing, but we're losing hope a bit I suppose. At present what institutions are there that protect you? So of course there's the ICGS or the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme but is there any other? I mean obviously you've got the unions. You must have your work cut out for you because unlike House of Commons staff who are employed by Parliament they have HR, they have structures in place but you don't have that do you? You don't have a HR? No there is HR for members which I feel advises MPs how to fire their staff. <laughs> um, but, Noble work. <laughs> yes, very honourable. Someone has to do it. But yeah, we don't have any facility like that. So really, and there are, there's a great member services team which started up during the pandemic to try and support staff more. But a lot of the time they do end up saying you should join one of the unions and go and speak to them. Which is why unions are so important in our workplace. But at the same time, we're in a really difficult position, obviously because we're employed by individual MPs, our recognition agreement is with the Parliamentary Labour Party rather than with our MPs because I work on my own in Westminster with my MP. If I want to, for example, go on strike, it's me against him. <laughs> like, it's completely unrealistic and he could fire me very, you know, justifiedly because actually that is against the law and whatever. It's a really complicated place to work and so much of... Why unions are important is because it's a really isolating place. For a lot of people, they're the only person in the office or maybe with one other. And it's quite hard to meet people. It's a very time-consuming, unpredictable workload. And people don't know where to turn. You can't talk to HR. You can't ask advice. Often people that work in Westminster are a bit younger than us now mm. in their you know early 20s and haven't really had jobs before. And really don't know what's acceptable and what's not. So you get calls and it's really basic stuff being like, are they allowed to do this? And you're like, definitely not. And I will help you push back. But you, I just can't believe sometimes that people don't know that and they're still asking those questions. And then they just leave. Exactly. Mm. Because they don't feel like there's anywhere to turn. Can you give us an idea of how many 
of MPs staff are members of unions and are looking at the workplace in the way that you are and thinking this, some of this stuff isn't acceptable and they'd like a change to the structure. You know, is that part of the consciousness of MPs staff collectively or is it still a bit of a niche? Because I can imagine a lot of people arrive in Parliament, like you say, in their early 20s, a bit starry-eyed and don't particularly want to see the downsides of it necessarily. I would say that since Jenny's taken over as chair of our branch, we've increased like absolutely exponentially. So it's both in Westminster and in constituencies because often constituency offices are forgotten in all of this and they face exactly the same issues that we do. I would say obviously there's party differences. Labour Party staff are a lot more active and tend to be involved in unions, but we are very much a cross-party union. We do have members of all parties. Often the problem with that is that if they're Conservative staffers, they are very conscious that they don't want anyone to know. They still need our advice and they very much need our help, but much less likely to bring you to meetings, much less likely for their office to know that they are, but clearly do recognise that we play a very important role. So to your question of numbers, it is definitely in between the two unions is in the thousands. Mm, yeah, probably. I, Across. Or over a thousand. And that's yeah. GMB and United. And United yeah, yeah, but we also, when you talk about, is it part of people's, like, the way they view Parliament being part of a union, I think that it is increasingly becoming so. Particularly, we're trying to spread the word about our proposal for the reform of employment because I think a lot of staff would think, oh, nothing can ever change because it's Parliament, it's so archaic, it's such an old institution, it's hard to make changes. Our tagline is basically, you're going to cringe, another Parliament is possible. We just believe that... that like explaining the concept of what we're proposing and trying to explain to people like this is how it would work we could be like any other workplace I think people are starting to believe it and understand it so we're quite hopeful I think that the future of the workforce is a lot more unionized and a lot more kind of active in terms of fighting for our workplace rights. Mm -hmm. Just on that point you made about parliament being quite archaic and I guess There's also the point that MPs, because they're elected, they have a slightly different kind of authority that comes with their role. They can't be fired in the same way that somebody who's badly behaved can be fired from their workplace. And I just wondered on that, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about MPs who are charged with sexual assault should be suspended from the workplace pending investigations and I think I probably already know your view on that, but it's probably worth talking about your reflections on that. Yeah, we made a submission to the speakers. Basically, there's a House of Commons consultation going on about whether MPs should be suspended from attending the Commons if they are... Well, the the initial proposal was if they are charged with a violent or sexual crime. We made the submission that we believe that they should be suspended at the point of arrest so much sooner because it's not very precautionary to wait until someone's charged before suspending them from the estate. So we believe that, yeah, MPs who are who are arrested for that sort of crime it should be considered a safeguarding risk until all risk is eliminated and we also believe that should apply to constituency offices constituency events because these MPs often interact with quite vulnerable people hospitals schools etc so we think that to have a complete you know abundance of caution we should be suspending those people in the way that in if a complaint is made or an allegation in a school or a hospital a lot of the time people are suspended immediately while an investigation takes place. After the break we delve further into the power imbalances and abuses that take place within Westminster. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. 
Subscribe to the New Statesman from just a pound a week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So just to pick back up on that theme of the power imbalance that you mentioned, Zoe, between the MP and staff, it must be really difficult for staff in particular because, of course, we know about some of the abuses that do take place that reach that criminal threshold. But there are other things that happen too. You may be guilt-tripped into working late for the cause, if you like, or you may feel maybe starstruck by the politician that you work for because they're someone who's on telly and they're famous and you feel like you ought to do things for them that perhaps are not appropriate to ask someone to do in a in the equivalent workplace. So is that something that comes up a lot in your work? Yes, <laughs> it is. And I would say, to be honest, as much it's good that it's been reported so much that you know sexual harassment and there are lots of MPs that are now implicated and things that have happened and that's completely right but actually the problem that is much more widespread and comes up daily for us is about bullying and harassment of staff it's not as attractive to media to talk about necessarily but actually it is such a phenomenally big issue and people accept working in a way that you would never accept if you worked somewhere else there's probably lots of reasons for that, that if you want to work for a Labour MP, you sell your firstborn child. Like, you know, if people really want to do it and means that they will put up with so much. But as part of that, you're completely right. There's so many stories of things that people are asked to do, like babysit for MPs' kids. Um, the girls. <laughs> it's never the male staff it, it is, asked it, to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's always the women. And <laughs> stuff like in recent things that have been published, we submitted again some of our experiences of casework you know somebody had to go out to Oxford Street and buy a belt because their MP didn't have a belt that went with their outfit that day <laughs> that kind of thing that is just so unbelievably unacceptable I would buy a really ugly belt <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many examples of that and you, you can't say no and what do you then do you recognize it's a completely unacceptable thing to do but if I'm asked to do that I'm probably still going to do it because what else am I going to do? Lose my job? Like, it's not worth that. So you do it anyway. So it's all those kind of things. And it, so much for us is trying to, like, change the entire culture of Parliament so MPs stop doing that. Because this does go down to MPs. It's their choice and it's their responsibility. Some of them think they're Miranda they Priestley, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because a lot of that, I guess, is that, as you were saying before, if they don't do it, then they're like, well, fine, we'll find someone who will do it. You're fired. But then... 
House of Commons staff who are employed by Parliament, they still have some of those behaviours still go on. So it's not just the insecure contract part of it, is it? It's also there is this kind of, it's not just the power imbalance, but there is for some MPs this sense of entitlement, this sense of I am elected, it's the cause and you're going to help me, you know, and, and staff who work for the House of Commons often get quite unreasonable requests as well from MPs. Off the top of my head, for example, even though they're trying to go paperless, they're trying to have everything online, they'll still be like, well, I can't use my laptop, so you're going to have to print out 50 pages and bring it over to my office. And it's like, you wouldn't really have that in another workplace to the same extent. But there is this entitlement I think sometimes some MPs and is it almost you should feel lucky to work here yeah I think so that message (laughs) like that comes up I think especially when people ask for pay rise Mm. if you're at the bottom of your pay band or for whatever reason you maybe you've been working there a long time or you got given a new job title new responsibilities but not a pay rise when you ask for one you can be told oh I, I thought you were grateful to have this job I thought that you were happy to be here but obviously you're not you're not satisfied so Maybe you should think about that more. Like, it's just, yeah. And when we talk about how you can get fired, it sounds flippant, but basically, it just all it takes is to fall out of favour. And, you know, there can be any reason for you to be fired. And someone can just say, right, I'm going to hold a review. Yeah, I don't think you're up to the standard of your job description. And, and off you go. And I think it's quite hard to describe how easy that is to happen and how many people that happens to. And that is why there's such a high turnover of staff. Mm. You look at the website where MPs advertise for staff, you will see how often people advertise and that is not a good sign. <laughs> and we know that. Mm. And as monk staffers, people talk about it all the time and you'd be like, oh, there's a job going for them. Someone comes to you, should I go for it? And you're like, absolutely not. Yeah. Like, if you want to be out of a job in three months, then maybe. But there are very much MPs that we know it's are serial. Them. Yeah, burn through them and that is for a reason. Mm. Well, we did do a analysis of the MPs with the highest staff right. turnover. And of course, there's all sorts of reasons why people might come and go. But we did try and control for job changes or coming in and out of the mm. shadow cabinet or government. And someone who did score quite highly on that was Lee Anderson, who came right. seventh. Uh, you didn't mention in, <laughs> when you were describing what he said on Twitter that he also made clear she was single. She was single, yes. So he's basically I was printing out his staff member. <laughs> but that's just another layer of like how inappropriate some of the attitudes attitudes are yeah it's just gross like talking about her like that it was really completely dominated the whatsapp groups for mps staff and especially women's staff for days didn't it Mm -hmm. yeah well i wanted to ask you a bit about that because i think what was interesting about when he tweeted that was a lot of people online who were responding to it seemed surprised that she earned less than 30k but from the parliamentary staff that i've spoken to that's something that they're used to Obviously, he was trying to make a certain point about her. But in general, what did that and the response to it tell you about the position of MP staff? I mean, I think the pay thing, people really would be very shocked by some of the stuff. You know, we've got plenty of people that work in Westminster. So you're having to rent in central London, realistically, earning 21 grand. Really long hours, really high workload, high pressure, lots of expectations earning that kind of money and MPs have the competability in it's often advertised that like IPSA are increasing mm-hmm. staff pay by 4.9% etc MPs can opt out of that so mm-hmm. some people haven't had any pay increase inflation aside mm-hmm. for years and people ex- again accept that and it's a question of why and all of those things but it 
is unbelievably common and I think people would be really shocked to know some of the stuff you know people have to go to party conferences but you have to pay for it you have to pay for your ticket you have to pay for your hotel that's a big expense you have to take annual leave to be able to go people wouldn't know that but that could easily cost you know 300 pounds that's the same as going on holiday but you have to do it because it's part of your job and And then you have to to labor and you have to work while you're there that's quite often when you're at a conference you'll meet a researcher or staffer that you know and they'll say oh I'm just in the hostel in two pounds down yeah, like, what? <laughs> yeah, why, why are we put up in a piercing? Yeah. <laughs> I think also, like, when we've been talking about the pay issue and how we were saying earlier, like, it's not really legal to go on strike about pay against your MP. What we mean by that is that IPSA, the financial body, control how much money the MPs are given. So while the MPs decide from that money, within reason, what we're paid, it's IPSA deciding the budget. So our grievance would be with IPSA because they're not raising the MP's budget enough to pay us more. But our employer is the MP. So our grievance is not with our employer. Therefore, we can't go on strike because we don't have like a, a recognition agreement. And so basically, we're always struggling to know like how we can take any sort of action because our employment is so convoluted. Yeah, that's what we wanted to ask you next was where you're at with potential strike action. But it looks like it's legally... Yeah, it's not really viable. Although we obviously are a branch full of people who are activists, trade unionists, a lot of Labour members, because of the way that our employment works, we're sort of bound by not being able to take up problems with our MPs about pay because it's Ipsa who decides the pay. And if you go on a strike against your employer without a proper grievance, then that's not a legal strike. And our members already have such low job insecurity that we don't feel like morally we can encourage them to take strike action when it could very reasonably result in being sacked Mm -hmm. or at least not having your contract renewed if you're on a fixed term or not having it extended if you're on short term. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that we're not doing anything. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) Just to reiterate that there are many MPs that don't use their full budget and realistically that is because many of them are scared of what it looks like to the media, to political opponents, to constituents, if they're seen to be spending a lot of public money. We have a massive problem with that in that staff should not be treated as expenses. And technically they're now called business costs, but it's all reported in the same way. So we have a real campaign to stop that because it disincentivizes them from using their staffing budget, paying people properly, paying enough people. There's obviously been a vast increase in casework since covid which hasn't gone down again, basically. So you've got the same number of staff dealing with unbelievably complicated cases and we just need more resource. So we've started a campaign on that and we will be talking to all MPs, hopefully, and about how they should be using their budget, that you should use as much as you possibly can. So, yeah, mm. ongoing. And, and also pushing IPSA to properly consult with us because one of the issues was that We put in a submission when they were doing the kind of pay review before Christmas. And although we don't, as we said, we're not, we don't have a recognition agreement with IPSA. We're not employed by them. They're very keen to assert that. So we don't have a formal right to negotiate. None of the unions do. But we do want to be consulted and at least treated with some courtesy. So we are writing to IPSA and we're going to be outlining some of the points that Holly's said, as well as just saying you must consult with us and show like a regard for cost of living that we're going through the inflation like 4.9% is what we've been given which is obviously more than some parts of the public sector but we believe that everyone should be getting a pay rise in line with inflation otherwise it's a pay cut and people have been 
people are already paid low, far beneath what they would be paid in other sectors. So it's it's quite unreasonable. With the point about the cost of living and how comparatively low the salaries are, but also you're expected to live in London, you're expected to work these really long hours. I mean, that must mean there is an over-representation of a certain demographic within staffers. So I'm thinking probably quite a lot of wealthier people who can maybe be supported by their parents. Also, I can imagine the long hours don't really, they're not really conducive with someone who's got care responsibilities or, you know, maybe disabled. So I just wondered, do you find that there are certain demographics that are quite overrepresented? Completely. Mm. I would say majority of staffers in Westminster, constituency is slightly different, are, you know, in their 20s, overwhelmingly white, still a massive gender imbalance. So many men. Too many men. (laughs) Too too many men, very much so. Um, It is a real problem because that is what is influencing our politics, right? The people that advise you are all from one sector. There's been lots of reports recently about gender and ethnicity of political advisors employed by parties, of both parties. It's a real problem and I would say it's one of the things I hate most about working in Westminster. It's sitting in the cafe and you are surrounded by... Honestly, it is, it's rich white men who think it's their God-given right to be there. And it's not. And it shouldn't be like that. And it's so inaccessible. And it's why giving people opportunities to come into Westminster, paid internships, that kind of thing, for people that would never be able to get this experience otherwise, is so important and not enough MPs do it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that sort of leads on to the next thing, which is, A lot of people may go and work in Parliament because they can imagine themselves one day maybe being an MP or maybe being a special advisor. Do you two feel that? And also, is that a common feeling among your It's far too common, (laughs) Anish. Oh my gosh, some of the people who really believe they are divinely entitled to (laughs) represent 80,000 people, it astonishes me. I'm deeply cynical about the people that put themselves forward, but also, obviously, Holly and I are surrounded by amazing MPs as well. So we don't talk about that enough, but we do have brilliant MPs who are wonderful employers and just amazing representatives and great public servants. But I think that sometimes it seems as though people are attracted to being an MP because of the status and because they like making speeches and getting branding and stuff. I would prefer to see more people who are really passionate about the casework side of being an MP. Obviously, we need legislators and policy specialists, but also people who just are really passionate about helping their constituents get through get through difficult times. So it's, I would love to see more parliamentary caseworkers wanting to be MPs. I think they're rooted in the real world. I think it is a very common ambition of people that come in as staffers yeah. and yeah, often men. It really is. And it does colour the experience of everybody in politics, I think. And People are very much like on this ladder. I would say I'm very much not one of those people (laughs) and I'm not interested in that. I'm in it because I wanted to make a difference. I was very passionate about it and I still feel that. But honestly, working in Westminster has fully affirmed that being an MP is an incredibly hard job. And there's so much expectation from constituents, from the media. There's a lot that people don't see from behind the scenes mm. and I think that probably that still goes back to what we were talking about before that it does encourage the same kind of people to go into that and that's not right and that needs to change. Mm. I was going to ask how life could be improved for staffers I think we've covered quite a lot of that but I guess on the same vein what more could be done then to ensure that you get 
a much more diverse range of staffers, a much more diverse range of people working in the House of Commons? What sort of things would you like to see? It's really hard to know. We've been having this discussion in our branch. We had a really good Black History Month meeting with a speaker from the GMB and we're very aware that particularly, I think, black men are very underrepresented in the MP staff base and therefore in our union. We were talking about how maybe it goes right down to when you're at school and making sure that schools explain democracy to people and everyone's role in it and encourage students of all kinds to study politics, to go to university and study it or to get involved in their politics societies at uni or if you don't go to uni then paid internships that sort of thing I think it probably has to go down right to the roots and obviously parliament has a great education centre where they bring kids in from all over I think that's great but how do we keep it going so that everyone feels like they have a place in parliament I think part of the problem is that it's the capacity within MPs offices everything is down to the staff that want to make a difference and a lot of people don't have the time and the first MP I worked for I was quite lucky in that somebody had already set up a scheme in the constituency that was linked to local colleges and the university in the town that specifically targeted kids from underrepresented backgrounds first generation going to uni ethnic minorities like all sorts of things and we partnered with them and would offer this paid work experience both in Westminster and the constituency. If every MP could do that, it would be such a different place and it would be incredible. And since then, somebody that was on that has started working in Parliament. And when I saw her, it was just, it honestly, the feeling was just like, do you know what, that actually made a difference. Mm. If that's like the one tangible thing in five years that I've done, <laughs> hey, then that's like a great thing. You created the Green thing. New Deal, Holly. <laughs> 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 then that's a great thing. And we should have that all over the country. But it's down to people like us finding the time, finding the resource to partner with people in communities. And that's unrealistic. So we need better resource to mm. be able to do that. Okay, we've talked a lot about the problems in Parliament, but why don't you end on a positive note by telling us your favourite thing about working there, so that we may encourage some people listening who <laughs> yes. might want to apply. So it is fantastic. Like, obviously, we're you know involved in the trade union. We hear a lot of difficult things. But also, my favourite thing is just being at the centre of where news is happening and, like, going home and reading the news or watching the news and being like, oh, my gosh, that happened at work today. Mm-hmm. And so Holly and I, like, were both around in the Brexit era it was thrilling, regardless of what side you were of the debate or what party you were in. It was just constant, exhilarating politics happening and being at the centre of that, it was exhausting, but also I loved it. And that was kind of replicated during the Liz Truss era for a little bit of microdosing of adrenaline there. <laughs> so, yeah. I think for me, it's seeing tangible differences. So things that you research you've done, an idea you've had that you've followed up on, and suddenly it's a news story. Mm. That's quite an amazing thing. You don't have that in many workplaces where you have the power to do that. And you can tell your MP and be like, do you think it's a good idea? Because I think it could be a goer. And then you see it and it's a big news story. And that's amazing. And that also goes for, you know, internally, like changing Labour Party's policy on something that you're passionate about. Also, that's like an incredible thing that you wouldn't have unless you were fully invested giving your life and soul to <laughs> politics. Mm. Great. Thank you so much, both of you, Thank for you. coming in Thank taking you. time out of your very busy schedules. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Hopefully we'll speak again. Yes, thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, the New Statesman's political reporter, Zoe Grunewald, and our guests, Jenny Simmons and Holly Brazier-Tope. We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. 
Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by May Robson and Chris Stone. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.